Dan. Riley. Here we are, back in the world of the weird. The wild. The wild? How's it wild? You know, when you see a sea monster, Riley, that is some wild and weird stuff. You sound like you're from the 60s. Man, that's really wild. Ooh. It's very hot here right now, and I am... I'm hallucinating as we speak. Oh my God, it is brutally hot here. I try not to say stuff in our episodes that are um, sort of specific to the time that we're recording these episodes because people might be listening months from now, but oh my God. You know, and there's, I hate listening to a podcast and saying, wait a minute. Was this recorded a few months ago? But get it. But you can see the date on it. Yeah, you can. It's 39 degrees Celsius. That's over 100 Fahrenheit. Yeah. We're all hallucinating. Anyway, we're, we're back. Um, we're here with episode number five. Wow. We made it through the first four. I didn't think we would. <laughs> it was touch and go there for a while. Yeah. It's my turn. And uh, I've got a really good one this week. Uh, this one's a, a creepier story than what I usually bring to the table. There's some pretty graphic violence in it too, but it's not about the violence. It's just about the place that the violence occurred. Do we have any administrative business we need to discuss? Twitter or Instagram or all those things that we do? Sure. We we are discoverable uh, on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. You can go visit us at The Weird as well. Uh, we are uh, we are on Twitter and we are uh, discoverable as uh, The Weird Podcast. And all of our, uh, obviously all of our episode information is uh, distributed through there. But also uh, you can see, you know, interesting photos. Some of the things that we're talking about uh, during the show, uh, we will post there. And uh, if you want to take a look and see uh, what uh, Highgate Cemetery looks like, go visit the Facebook page or our, uh, our Twitter thing. Yeah, we promise we'll start posting more content. I've been a little bit remiss in that as well, but I will, um, I'll certainly get on that. And we'd also like you to communicate to us anything that you think, um, is, um, warrants our attention. Because oftentimes the stories that are the most wonderful and surprising are the ones that we don't know about. So yeah. if you know it's a tale that you believe ought to be shared with the rest of the world, throw it out there and let us know. And we will, we will certainly, um, Turn our eyes in that direction. And I'll just remind people that's weird with a Y. Oh. Yeah. Did we introduce our, um, I think, I believe we've been calling her our intrepid producer. Yes, we have. That is our intrepid producer. I feel like that's getting old. It's, it's Bonnie. That is our intrepid producer, Bonnie. But you, you don't want to call her intrepid anymore. Dashing. I like dashing. Dashing's great. Prancing. Oh, prancing. It sounds like Christmas. Ladies and gentlemen, our sophisticated producer, Bonnie Robinson. Yes, there we go. I'm like here. That. Every now and then her voice will pipe in, um, filling in the little gaps and divots. I use that word every time because I love it. Because my dad made me take golf lessons. And all I did was chip out divots, which are little bits of earth that you have to replace when you're playing golf. And my dad made me take golf lessons, which was a bad idea. All I wanted to do was read the Hardy Boys and not walk around with old guys. It was, it was just creepy. It was, you know, me, me and like six old guys. It was like some awful pedophile movie. <laughs> you, you golf? 
I do not well. It's it's for a specific palate golfing. It's it's a very slow. It's slow. Do you know what my favorite part was though? Do you know what my favorite part was? The twisty turny thing to wash your ball that you you plunge your ball up and down in and it cleans it. Do you know what I'm talking about? I I think I do, and I feel like this is going down a dark uh, X-rated path. I'm not comfortable with. No, I'm serious. I know what you're talking about. Yes. There's a ball washer. All a ball washer on the fairway, and you put your ball because golfers are obsessed, and they think that the littlest bit of dirt will cause the ball to veer <laughs> in a different direction. So, and it's got it's it's a spirally thing, and it's there's soapy water, and you 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 get your clean ball out of it. I'm not thinking what you're thinking. I'm I'm not seven years old. <sighs> uh, all right, what's your story? What's your story? Hey man. Hey man, what's your story? What's your story? How'd you end up here? What's your story? <laughs> I'm auditioning. Um, my story for this week is um, okay. I will back pedal a little on the not back pedal, but back up the car a bit and tell you that I'm obsessed and terrified by insane asylums. You're not supposed to call them that. It's not nice. But that's what I called them growing up, and that's what they were called in the research that I did for this podcast. So I'm going to call it an insane asylum. I believe the correct the correct term now is Walmart. <laughs> oh boy. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about an insane asylum, and this is one that is known uh, as one of the top ten most haunted places in the United States. So the name of the asylum that I'm going to be taking you to tonight is called the Trans-Allegheny Asylum. Like I said, it's way up there on the list of haunted spaces. I've always had a terrifying fear. Well, not terrifying, but terrible fear of asylums. I remember Mm -hmm. one time when I was young, I read a story where a guy goes to visit, a short story, his friend in the asylum. And he walks down the hall to visit his friend and immediately a nurse comes up and goes, Mr. Brown, get back to your room. Right. And the guy's like, I'm not Mr. Brown. And she's like, Oh, Mr. Brown, get out of here now and stop with your shenanigans. And then they call for the, you know, the orderlies and they restrain this poor guy who's not Mr. Brown and they give him Thorazine and he spends the rest of his life in a padded cell. Hmm. And ever since I read that story, like I'm just convinced it's going to happen to me in, in an asylum because I've gone to um, a mental health facility to visit a friend who had a very bad sleeping disorder. And I was convinced when I was there that they were going to lock me up. And I'm sure a lot of people out there think I'm a good candidate, but we'll, that's a story (laughs) for another day. Well, you're being hard on yourself there. There. You're doing that Irish thing again. Anyway, let's talk about the Trans-Allegheny Asylum. It's a really interesting building. It still exists and it's open to the public, but we'll be getting to that later on. It is one of the largest hand-cut stone buildings in the world. And it's only rivaled by the Kremlin in Moscow. Apparently, there are very few buildings out there that are hand-cut stone, and this is one of them. So we have to go into the Wayback Machine for this. Construction on the facility began in 1858. And this very famous psychiatrist named Thomas Story Kirkbride had a lot of influence in the building of the facility. You know, Dan, when we were 
um, research these stories, sometimes we find another thread that leads us in a different direction and that is equal and is as equally fascinating as the story. This is one of those times because like ocean flatulence. Yes. Oceanic flatulence, which I, I still haven't recovered from that. So Kirkbride came up with this concept known as the Kirkbride plan. In the years just before the American Civil War, there was a whole shift in the way that they approached mental illness. Previously, and we can you know think back to literature we've read, it was a lock them up and throw away the key kind of proposition for mental illness. So we're talking we're talking sorry right before the um, the Civil War. So before eighteen fifty eight, okay. because that's when. Wow, I'm 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 surprised that back then, not far, they were starting to. Get they it. were absolutely. So. Mm. Kirkbride believed that most in, insanity and mental illness could be cured and um, only by institutions built for that purpose. Before that, mm. they were thrown into hospitals, they were thrown into prisons, but he believed that the institution needed to be constructed from the ground up, brick by brick, for the purpose of curing mental illness. Mm-hmm. He was uh, the superintendent of the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane in Philadelphia. He worked there for 43 years, so he wasn't an early retired guy. He worked his whole life. And he believed specifically that the majority of mental disorders were the result of social conditions. He believed that family, religion, politics, uh, life experiences, all those kinds of things would influence our mental health. And he wasn't actually far off because we know now that those can be perpetrators. Of course. So he believed the best way to treat those illnesses was to isolate the patient from them. So he had specific ideas of treatment and he called those moral treatment. And I'm going to now tell you what moral treatment entailed. It entailed a fixed schedule to control and rehabilitate the patient. I'm actually reading from his document. Number two, kind treatment with a minimum use of restraint. Number three, a daily visit from the superintendent. Number four, calm and pleasant surroundings. Number five, and this is the very important, accommodations that separate patients according to degree of disturbance. Prior to that, they didn't do that. They put everybody in. So you might be slightly Asperger's or you might have a slight behavioral disorder and you could be thrown in with murderers. Right. So he believed that you needed to segregate people according to how bad off they were. Number six, proper diet with some medication. Number seven, physical or mental occupation. He believed it was important to keep the mind and the body busy. So in 1844, 13 institutions came together as the Association of Medical Superintendent of American Institutions for the Insane. Imagine that letterhead. (laughs) They believe that the institution itself played an important role in curing mental illness. And Kirkbride, who kind of was the top of the totem pole, authored on the construction, organization, and general arrangements of hospitals for the insane with some remarks on insanity insanity and its treatment. It sounds like an academic paper. Only academics would call something that. Like, you're not going to see that on the bestseller list. I don't know. That's That's a lot of title. I fell asleep while you were reading the title. So did I. So that document, that treatise, dealt with very specific issues, such as building materials and paint color. He believed that the buildings should be built in a V formation. Think of a flock of birds. 
that kind of V so that each room could receive maximum ventilation and all rooms could receive sunlight. Hmm. So they weren't built like prisons. They were built so that they had long, long corridors with rooms on either side so that everybody had access to natural light and could see the outside world. That, that, and I, I find that remarkable that back then he was onto something. There, and- he was onto something. And it also explains why people who live in townhouses are so fucked up. Yeah, or apartment buildings, right, where there's very little windows. And it's why everyone looks so sad in Blade Runner. <laughs> there you go. No, but you think of all those dystopic things. There's, a, there's truth to that. Light is so important. You know, my current office uh, at, uh, at my other job has no window. And it's, uh, it's tough. It's really tough. That's bad mojo. You need some light. It's bad mojo. I have, I have nice lamps. I have lamps too, because my cubicle, I'm very far from the window. So I have a lot of atmospheric lighting. Um, okay. I'll get back onto topic here. The asylums were, it was very important for him that they were surrounded by parkland and they called the asylums that they built according to his plan, Kirkbrides. Hmm. So the Trans-Allegheny Asylum that we're talking about today was a Kirkbride. That sounds so creepy. So that's the story. There you go. Lots of sunlight, parks, good food, exercise, parkland, and they treat you humanely. And they give you food and a bit of medicine, which is my life. Well, that's great. That's that was a good episode. Uh, so I got to be a little bit more, just a little bit more. The Trans Allegheny was designed by an uh, architect named Richard Snowden Andrews. Like I said earlier, construction started in 1858, but it was halted in 1861 because of the Civil War. Civil War. Construction started again in 1862, and at that time, it was renamed the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane, and it opened its doors to patients in October of 1864. Okay. Construction wasn't done then. Construction was a long, arduous process, and it didn't conclude till 1881. Oh. Yeah, so people were already living there, um, and it was just, they were just keep, kept on building. And where was Kirk... Uh... Kirk, um, Pennsylvania. Okay. So he, he, he wasn't Kirk bride. You almost said Kirk McBride. I did almost say Kirk McBride. I did Kirk McBride. I built a boat and the sanatorium. Um, so he didn't oversee this, the, the construction of this, uh, trans, uh, Alan Haney. Trans Allegheny. No, he did not. But he was heavily involved. His input was was there. Right. I believe he visited it from time to time, but not. He was he was located in Pennsylvania. Okay. So Trans Allegheny was completely self sufficient, which is kind of remarkable as well. Farm. It had a farm. It had greenhouses. Hmm. It had dairy, water treatment facilities, and cemeteries. There were three cemeteries. Yeah. There are there are about two thousand people interred there. All of them who were patient, most of the majority of them who were patients. Super sad, meaning their families didn't want them after they passed. Yes. Well, there was a stigma attached to mental illness. Yeah. And you think there was a stigma, there's a stigma attached today. But sure. you th- back then it was horrendous. Families would basically abandon their loved ones because of mental illness. It was considered shameful and it still kind of is, but uh, we're getting there. Was there, was there a religious aspect to it too like where perhaps people thought it was demonic or you know something like of that nature didn't really encounter that in my research and uh, probably that's probably more 
medieval era. Probably back in the medieval times or the Middle Ages, they probably would abandon. I'm sure that religious people took care of mentally ill people because no one else would. Because religion would always step in, right? Even if you think like 1600s with uh, like the Salem witch trials and all that, you know, you wonder some of the people that were burnt at the stake if they were just mentally ill. Well, interesting. Interestingly enough, apparently uh, people thought a major cause of mental illness in the 19th century was religious excitement. I think that's still applicable. Yeah, quite possibly. And uh, observable in most Walmarts. Oh, we're back to Walmart. There goes our chance of ever getting Walmart as a sponsor. And I was counting on that. I've got a I've got an inside line on Sears. Sears is bankrupt. What? Anyway, I here's another thread that led me in a different direction. This you'll like, Dan, because you read The Shining. I did. And, and I read The Shining. There's something called the stone tape theory. Stone tape theory. Remember this, because I'm sure it's going to come up again. And it is a theory whereby people believe that buildings made of certain materials retain psychic energy, much the way oh, a tape recorder retains sound. Mm. So stone, as in building stone, tape theory. So hmm. they believe that the Trans-Allegheny was constructed of a material that is perfect for retaining psychic energy. So as you said earlier, families didn't usually claim the body because there was a stigma attached to mental illness. Now here's some more fun facts for you. Guess how many acres the Trans-Allegheny is built on? A lot. 666. Holy jumping. I'm not kidding. That's like a small town. Mm-hmm. But 666, 666. That's the mark of the beast. Yeah. Oh, weird. Right? Oh, that's so weird. And guess how many buildings are on the facility? 13. Oh, weird. Yeah. Oh, that's so strange. So for in its heyday, there was no age limit for admission to the facility. So children were routinely hospitalized there, many who simply were unwanted or had minor behavioral issues. It also, because that was the time, had a tuberculosis building and patients were quarantined there. Many, many, many people were unjustly confined there for really stupid reasons. And I actually have in front of me a copy of the list of reasons for admission. And this was applicable from 1864 to 1889. I'm just going to go through them now with you. Uh, you'll love this. Okay, here we go. Intemperance and business trouble. Kicked in the head by a horse. Well, hold on. What's intemperance? What's intemperance? Bonnie, what's intemperance? Uh, it's uh, drinking. Um Drinking too much. Oh, right, 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 right. Temperance. Yeah, yeah, okay. Hereditary predisposition, ill treatment by husband, imaginary female trouble. I've had that. That's hysteria. Hold on. It, yeah. Ill treatment uh, by your husband. Yeah. So you're treated poorly by your husband and that lands you in the asylum. Yeah. Because it's your fault. I guess. I wasn't wow. there, so I, I can only assume. Immoral life. Imprisonment, jealousy and religion, because they go together apparently, laziness, marriage of son, masturbation and syphilis, because they go hand in hand, masturbation for 30 years. 
What? Medicine to prevent conception, menstrually deranged, mental excitement, excessive novel reading. Well, I would be there like right away. (laughs) Hold on. I want to go back to 30 years of masturbation. What does that mean? If you only masturbated for 29 years, that's okay? Yeah, that's when you had to stop. You stopped after 29? I, I want to know whose job it was to monitor that. Okay, continuing nymphomania, dissolute habits, which is a great name for a punk band, Uh, domestic affliction, domestic trouble, dropsy, which I love, egotism, epileptic fits, excessive sexual abuse, excitement as officer. What does that mean? I don't know. Exposure and hereditary, exposure and quackery, exposure in army. I think it's people who came back with like PTSD and right, shit right. from being, yeah. Uh, fever and jealousy, fighting fire, suppressed masturbation. You can't win. Mm-hmm. You jerk off, you're in, the, mm-hmm. you're in the crazy house. You don't, you're in the crazy house. Suppression of menzies. I don't, Bonnie, you're the woman here, but how do you suppress your menzies? I imagine, I, I'd have to look this up, but perhaps it's because of, um, maybe eating habits, which would create, you know, not enough weight, fat that women would stop menstruating. But I'm going to look that one up. Okay. The war, just as the war. Yeah. Time of life. And this is one of my uterine derangement. I don't know. It's your uterus goes mad. And so do you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway, those are, and those were reasons for admission written in the log books. And there seems to be, and it, uh, this is a for real question, uh, were a lot, were like, was there a more women in these asylums than men? Of course. Right. A lot of men would just drop their women there uh, to get rid of them. Wow. Yeah. 1913, the name of the facility was again changed to the Weston Hospital. Now, it's important to recognize the facility was built according to the Kirkbride plan to house about mm-hmm. 250 patients comfortably. But due to greed, mm-hmm. of course, lack of facilities, and general disinterest when it came to mental illness by the public, by 1880, there were 717. By 1938, there were 1,661. And by the 1950s, when it hit its peak, there were 2,400 patients housed in a facility originally built for 250. Wow. In 1949, there was an expose where several newspapers ran articles describing conditions at the facility, specifically the overcrowding. They had terrible sanitation practices. They had insufficient staff and atrocious living conditions. It also became home to the West Virginia lobotomy project. There were thousands of lobotomies performed at Mm. the facility and many of them were the brutal transorbital or what we know as the ice pick lobotomy Mm -hmm. where they would go under the orbit of the eye with no sedation and sever connections in the head. Oh, it's known as one of the most cruel, cruel practices ever developed to promote mental health. Electroshock therapy, another fun thing, was also practiced there. Also in its uh, history, many criminally insane people were sent there and they should not have been. And most of the very dangerous inmates were locked in cages in the middle of rooms. Some people state that the cages were in the middle of like common areas 
So the rest of the patients would mill around and have these cages in the middle of the rooms with criminally like insane people who should have been under lock and key somewhere else. Wow. So it, it, it would be like you're like a day room with a cage in the middle. Yeah. Where not, could- not right. Because the, because these hallways, I guess were just long hallways with, cells or rooms off to the side. So mm-hmm. interesting. So they had to put the most dangerous in the Okay. We'll um, post some pictures of the asylum so people can see um, the configuration, how it was built. Yeah. Uh, when I say okay. the V shape of the flock of birds, when you finally see the building, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the asylum was the principal employer also in the town of Weston, where it was located for 130 years. It was one of those anchor businesses. So very small town America where there's one industry or institution that employs the entire town. And then when it goes out of business, the whole town is, is upended. So that is the history. And that's, that's, I'm not even into the the spooky part yet that I'm here to talk about. That's just the history. I hope you don't mind me going into the Kirk bride plan. I just thought it was really interesting. No. And that is so freaking creepy. Like that is, you could have just kept it. At that, I'm assuming you're saying you've got more to the story. But Kirkbride had it right. He had it. He was on to something. But again, because of the way we treat mental illness and the fact that there was no funding, but he was on to something. He was on to he believed that they needed to be treated humanely and that, you know, that there, we needed to refine our approach. So he he was a good guy. It, it's it, yeah. And it's it that that's, I guess, the nice part of it is that there were and there are people out there working so hard even back then to to help these people. Yeah. I was thinking when you first brought it up, my first experience with this sort of thing was actually a, a, like a graphic novel that I had as a kid about Nellie Bly. Oh, Nellie Bly. And and her investigative reporting in that women's asylum mm-hmm. and how they treat because she went in pretending to be ill and then reported on how she was she was treated and it was horrific it was, it was terrible it was barbarous it was yeah they tortured her yeah we have a lot to uh, we have a lot to atone for we do before we continue, I just want to add about the um, suppression of menses or menstrual suppression. Apparently, not having menstruation was considered a sign of potential madness. And interestingly enough, it was most pronounced with reference to menopause. Hmm. So doctors at the time thought that um, women would experience a form of neurosis uh, when their menses ceased, like when you finally reach menopause. So that is why um, you, you know, you brought up mental menstrual suppression. That is what it means. Okay. I think it's time that we talked about the hauntings because this is the interesting part. The number one ghost At the facility is a young girl known as Lily. Some believe she was the daughter of an inmate named Gladys Ravenfield, who had been raped by soldiers. Oh. Yeah, the trauma of that event eventually drove her mad. Others believe that Lily is the daughter of a wealthy woman with the first initial E, whose parents brought her to the facility to have an illegitimate child. Almost everyone universally believes that Lily was born at the asylum. The staff gave her the name Lily and cared for her. Now, given that Lily could have been and was likely the product of rape, she was never adopted. And the child became an inmate herself. Oh my God. She died at the age of nine. Wow. 
she she's one of the most familiar ghosts. They actually have a room at the facility dedicated to her. It's painted yellow. Um, I've seen pictures. The paint is peeling, but it's her room. The things that she does is very, uh, she does childlike things. She pulls on your clothing. She will steal candy. She'll move objects slightly, mostly her toys. She's harmless. As ghosts go, they claim that she is perpetually looking for someone, specifically a mother. Wow. And can I, can I, can I ask you, how did she die? They don't know. They believe she just died of something, an illness that she contracted at the facility, pneumonia okay. or something. Okay. That's, there's no specific reference. And she wasn't treated like an inmate? No, but she lived there. People who have seen her say that she's wearing a simple white dress. And there are actually people who've played ball with her. Not how we think, like ball, ball back and forth, but the ball will take an hour to roll across the room. I don't know if you've ever seen those mm. ghost huntery shows, but that's usually how it happens. The ball will roll very slowly across the mm. room. She is also said to turn flashlights off and on. And they keep a permanent selection of toys there for her to play with. And you can visit her room. I should mention the Trans-Allegheny because it is one of the 10 most haunted places in the United States on many lists. Every single one of those shows like Paranormal This and Ghost Hunters and, you know, We Find the Dead, mm -hmm. whatever those shows are, um, they've all gone there. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know. I, I liked those shows maybe back in the 90s, but I, I find them super repetitive. I mean, it's always the same. It's always, you know, we're in the corridor and it's always night, right? And they're always like, we're, okay, we're, we're in the corridor and what was that? You know, you'll hear some noise down the corridor and, or else they'll have those night vision goggles. And it's like Jodie Foster in Buffalo Bill's basement. Yes. You know, you know, they're all like, Oh, there's a good, you know, Oh my God, the temperature here just dropped 10 degrees. And it's always, yes. it's always the same, yes. you know, litany of, of things. But anyway, Oh my God, there's a, uh, a uh, Bruce Willis as a psychologist in front of me and Mark Wahlberg in underwear in my shower. I think you're letting your fantasy life bleed into the podcast. Anyway, um, so everybody and their mother have has been to the asylum to interact with Lily. And they've set up experiments. I could go on, but I'm not going to. But Lily is the number one. People will go to the asylum just to communicate with Lily. Mm -hmm. Because she's benign. Everybody loves a benign ghost. She is completely harmless. Everybody wants to unlock her story. I've wa I watched, oh my God, the, the endless videos I watched preparing for this. But, I, you know, psychics sitting there going, Lily, are you here? Oh, she's here. And they describe her and it's all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's Lily. She is the number one ghost at the facility and the most famous. Mm -hmm. People also claim to have been visited by a ghost named Ruth. And she targets men. It's said that she hated men in her real life, and now she hates them as a ghost. So she will push and prod male visitors, and some visitors to the facility have said that she has actually violently shoved them into the wall. Mm -hmm. So she's the opposite of Lily. She's, uh, she's not fun to be around. When does this happen? Like, when, when people describe this, is this people staying overnight? Is this tour? Like, can you get a tour of this place, or is it like... You're breaking in. It's a condemned building. Well, first of all, it's a national historic site in Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it's a national historic site. So it's protected. It's privately owned, but it does function as a visitor uh, hotspot. So everybody goes. And there are night 
um, there are night excursions. You, I think you can actually stay over certain times of the year. No, thank you. I'll get to that though. I've got that information at the end uh, for our listeners. So that's Ruth. On the third floor, there is a ghost named Elizabeth. She was a nurse at the facility mm. and people claim to hear her. She's often going about her day-to-day routines, closing and opening doors and running taps and things like that. Did she die there? I believe so. Wow. Yeah, I believe so. I would assume that if you're a ghost, you died there or else you made a significant trip. Ward two in the uh, asylum is one of the most haunted parts of the facility. It is particularly haunted by a patient who was stabbed 17 times in the shower and left to die alone. Oh. Took him several hours to die and people claim to hear him shrieking and crying for help. You know, something interesting. It's actually hard to kill someone with a knife. Like you got to kind of hit a vital organ and go deep enough. I don't know why I know this, but I know. Well, I know this too from true crime because people who stab other people too are often seriously hurt themselves. Not seriously hurt, but their hands are lacerated because they'll hit bone and the knife will just ricochet. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. God, we're grim. That's some grim shit right there. That's yeah. It's uh, you know, being stabbed is an everyday reality in my world. I run in several, I run in several gangs, Riley. I, I knew that from that bandana. And my jean jacket. Now, here is the grimmest part of our tour of the Allegheny Asylum. The bed post murder room. What? So this is at the height of overcrowding. Two violent patients were housed with a mentally impaired gentleman. Okay. He was prone to outbursts. It was the nature of his illness, but he was completely harmless. But the two violent patients found him very annoying. So one night, they had just had enough. They tied a sheet around his neck and raised him up on a pipe until he blacked out. Then they would bring him back down on the floor until he regained consciousness and do this again and again. Finally, when they got bored of it, they took the bed that he was sleeping on, took the leg of the bed, placed it on the temple of his head, and jumped oh, on the bed. Oh, gross. Oh, God. Oh. That's why it's called the bed post murder room. His, his skull was pierced. Oh, my God. Yeah. The patient's name was Dean, and his spirit is said to haunt the space, peaceful, benevolent, but tormented. Oh, my God. That's terrible and sad. People who have been to the bedpost murder room have said they feel incredible fear, incredible sense of cold and unease because he died in such a violent way. And he should never have been housed with violent criminals. Never should have been housed with them. And they, they killed him in a very brutal way. Wow, yeah. wow, wow, wow. There's also a presence that many um, psychics and paranormal investigators have identified called Jane. Through death records, because these investigators have done their research, they discovered that a patient indeed named Jane Harvey had been at the facility and had killed herself there. And they've narrowed the location of her death down to a few rooms in the facility where her energy seems to be most prevalent. So they know mm-hmm. her. And again, she's harmless but tormented. Mm-hmm. Generally, many people report sensations of being watched and followed at the facility. Some claim that spirits from the asylum have actually followed them home. Wow. Is that common? Is that a common thing for ghosts to follow, like to leave their home? I've never heard of that. I've never heard of that either. I, I will say, I will say this did happen to me um, in Florida. Um, I was in a house on a moving cart 
and I saw a ghost down below to my right. And then I looked to my left, uh, like a, a 30 seconds later, and the ghost was to my left. Yeah, because no one's ever been to the haunted mansion, you idiot. Yes. Oh, you've been, you've heard oh, of it. God, why do I bother? People wonder why I'm a raging alcoholic. Oh, yes. I actually uh, did never liked that attraction. I loved it. And I used to go to... I used to go to Disney World as a kid almost every year, and I never liked that. I was a Space Mountain guy. Why? I just thought it looked – I was too old, and it looked kind of hokey. I loved uh, Space Mountain. I went on it six times probably each time I went there. I, I loved it. I accidentally took my two-year-old son on it uh, for his first trip. On Space Mountain? No, the haunted, the haunted Mansion. Oh, okay. I thought you meant uh, Space Mountain as well. I was shocked. I was too. No, I wasn't allowed to go on Space Mountain until I was 12. But I even had a book. I had a book about the Haunted Mansion that I guess I got in Disney World. And I, w I would read that over and over and over. It came with a tape. So you'd listen to the tape and follow along with the book. Well, now we have Eddie Murphy to thank for ruining that franchise forever. That horrible movie. All right. Workers, workers have reported hearing squeaking wheels traveling through the corridors. So the wheels of um, stretchers and wheelchairs and yeah. things. Yeah. There's also an entity named Jim. He follows people and there is a recording of him saying his name. So he'll whisper his name. Hmm. And many have also seen spectral figures of patients and also of civil war soldiers. And finally in the children's ward, which was on the second floor, many people have heard the voices of laughing children. So uh, I'm ending it on a slightly more positive note. no, no, that's the worst. They're laughing. No, no. Children laughing as a spectral thing, terrible. Okay. Children well. laughing in a park and you could see them, fine. Or singing, ch children singing. And I think that probably stems back to Nightmare on Elm Street. You remember the one, two, Fred is coming for you. That thing, you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. I do. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I can tell you a real life thing. Uh, just a couple of years ago, I was uh, awakened in the middle of the night by my uh, son who was singing in his sleep in like this oh. weird, high pitchy. It freaked me out. That and the time I woke up and he was standing at the foot of my bed just staring at me. Do you know how many people have had that experience? My friend Christy told me that story too, that the kid just standing there staring at them. All kids do that. It's terrifying. Bonnie, did, did your kids do that? Sometimes, yes. I remember, yes. It was terrifying. Yeah. I screamed. Like, I actually screamed, like, oh, when, when it happened. Um, so children are terrifying. So let me finish up. By the 1980s, due to, due to um, advancements in the treatment of mental disorders, the population at the hospital had decreased quite a bit. Mm -hmm. A new modern hospital was built, and Weston shut its doors in 1994. Oh. Like I said, it's a national historical land. Yeah, it was going till the 90s. So currently, they have daytime heritage tours. They have nighttime ghost tours. At Halloween, they have a uh, haunted house. They mm -hmm. have a zombie walk. You can stay there at night. I don't know what times of year you can do that. But it's uh, also visited daily by ghost hunters. Everybody and their mother, who's a psychic, has been there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a it's a national hotspot for paranormal activity. There you have it. The Trans-Allegheny Asylum. I would love to go and visit. 
Me too. Me too. And I was thinking, as one does, that perhaps we could, if the uh, podcast catches on, make a commitment to our listeners that uh, you and uh, and me and Bonnie will have excursions to some of the places we talk about maybe once or twice a year. And we'll do maybe a podcast from from there. And this is an easy one to get to because it's a public facility and they're more than willing to accommodate visitors who um, are doing podcasts or special um, projects. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. Very neat. I, I, I spent, I, I, and I know you know this story, uh, but the good listener does not. I once worked uh, at the Ottawa, old Ottawa jail, which is now uh, really a hostel, but they left the top floor intact as it was. And it's supposed to be one of the most haunted buildings in Ottawa. It had a death row. Uh, In fact, the gallows still operate. And I was hired by a local, well, the Ottawa. Wait, 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 wait. You just said the gallows still operate. Yeah, they work. I know, but they're operational. They don't still operate. (laughs) Oh, no. I saw several hangings when I was there. They operate. They run. In Canada, we like to hang people. (laughs) If you don't say you're sorry, you get hung. Um, (laughs) No, so, but I spent like every night for two weeks in death row. My job was to scare groups coming through by like whispering and rattling chains and stuff. I never saw anything. I never heard anything. I did. I will say I, there's a presence there. People died. People died there. There's a weird energy. Never saw. I, I so desperately wanted to have an experience with a ghost. I think part of it too would be confirmation that there is something beyond this life. Never had that, but it was still a fascinating place filled with energy. I guess is the best way to to describe it. I've had one and only one experience in my life that I could say made me think that maybe there's more to uh, the uh, you know the more to our existence and what happens after we don't exist in this corporeal form anymore. Um, yes. The day my mom died. I was, I went gone to visit her and I missed her. Uh, she died about 20 minutes before I arrived. Um, now my mother had been heavily medicated because she was a cancer patient. So she was on morphine, heavily medicated and was really unrecognizable as herself for about the last three weeks of her life because morphine turns you into a raving lunatic, which is one of the reasons why I think I would make certain choices if I was that terminally ill because I, I've had a lot of people die that way and I don't think it's a good way to go. Right. It's very undignified. Anyway, my mom died and my father and I, I remember we drove home and it was a very grim time. Like you have to understand my mother and I did not have a good relationship. It was not uh, a good Mm. I, I don't I don't have fond memories of her and I doubt she does of me either. Mm. Anyway, um, the night that uh, she died, I was at home with our dog, uh, the Sheltie Dylan, who was her companion throughout the ordeal of her passing. And I have to say there's something so important about the bond between a person and a pet when they are ill. Um, it, that experience watching my mother and her interactions with the dog throughout the, her decline really made me realize what a gift pets are to us as a species. They really, they're such a gift, their generosity, and they just know that when we need protection 
and that when we need their companionship. But anyway, Dylan was home with me and um, I was in my room. My father wasn't home. We were making arrangements with the funeral and calling relatives and stuff. Anyway, that night I was in my room and all of a sudden I heard a noise and it was the noise of the monitors that had been in her room the exact pitch of the monitors that were monitoring her heartbeat and her pulse. And uh, our house was very large. I was in the west side of the house and they were in the east side of the house. And there was a big stairway separating us, big house. Um, I walked out of my room and looked across the stairway and coming out of my parents' room was that green glow that the machines that she was hooked up to would emit and the house was pitch black. I was home alone. It was the middle of the night. So, sorry. And the mach- there are no machines. There were no machines in the house. There was a, just a hospital bed that she had had, which was next to my father's, be- my mother and father's bed, but she had a hospital bed there as well. And the dog ran across the landing to their side of the, the thing, sat down and began to wag his tail and whine in the direction of the glowing light. Oh, my God. It was the, and I just felt something passing through the home and I could only assume that perhaps it was just touching on familiar places on the journey. That's what I probably would put it down to. And it was the only time in my life, because I'm very skeptical, I'm just that way, but it was the only time in my life where I've been somewhat convinced that there might be things that uh, we're just not aware of going on, but it was a very important moment. And the dog's reaction solidified the whole experience for me. And then the glow went away. I couldn't hear the noise of the machines anymore. And that was that. It all took about two minutes. I See, I find that type of story the most compelling. And I know you. And you're not someone who makes things up and certainly wouldn't about something like that. And it, I've had um, close family members, my mom, uh, my wife, when... Uh, her grandmother passed and grandfather passed had similar things to what you just described happen where there was an experience shortly after they had passed that was just very odd and unexplainable, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and, and both my mom and my, and, and Marion's there again, those are people that will try to rationalize and explain. They're not, they don't immediately go to the supernatural, but it's unexplainable. It's just, it's very weird. Mm -hmm. You know, in my mom's case, it was uh, my grandfather. When he went into the hospital, he was dying of cancer and he, um, he wasn't conscious. And he had this brief moment where he, but right before he died, where he was able to describe things that he had never seen. So in a sense, it was like he was having an out of body experience well returning to returning to trans allegheny what one thing i did want to mention um was because i'd mentioned stephen king earlier and i do believe that it makes sense that when he described the overlook in the shining he said that some hotels or, or places were like batteries and the more things that happened there the greater the charge would be it was like charging up a battery and um so maybe that is what happened at Trans Allegheny. Maybe the battery just was overcharged. And there are, I mean, if there's any place on earth there is going to be lost souls, it's going to be an asylum, mm-hmm. especially an asylum that had seen such atrocity and had housed people that had no business being there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
So I had to share that story. Um, I thought it was important. I love the idea of haunted facilities. And hopefully Dan and Bonnie will get to go there someday and see what's going on. Yeah, just don't murder me there, okay? With a bedpost. Uh, no, I, I, no, my plan doesn't, doesn't include murdering you there. Oh, just somewhere else. Yeah. Okay, um, uh, we're at uh, 50 minutes. It's the longest episode we've ever done, but we, we talked about other things, and that's life, right? So um, my, um, my apologies for that, but I think it's a good episode, and uh, I hope you do too, dear listener. So that's it for me. That's the Trans-Allegheny. Um, we'll be back next week with another tale of the uncanny and unusual. My name is Riley. And I am Dan. Bonnie. I'm Bonnie. <laughs> Thanks for listening. That's Bonnie. See you soon, folks. Bye. Good night. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. One, two, Freddy's coming for you.